1: Okay, welcome back. We have an awesome interview today with Will O'Brien, CEO and founder of BitGo. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Will. Thanks, Trace. Good to be here. So BitGo, they raised, what, $12 million? Just over fourteen. actually. Oh, just over $14 million. Yeah. So a big cash treasury. What brought you into Bitcoin? What does BitGo do? Why did you decide to start
2: it? I got into Bitcoin in 2012, became pretty obsessed with it. Uh, rather quickly my background is in a combination of technology fintech uh and then startups in the consumer space in the digital publishing space uh, in the payment space i have a combination of um technical background harvard computer science and a business background mit business school and among all of those experiences both educational and professional I immediately saw that Bitcoin is so pervasive that it literally touches on everything I've ever done in my professional career and to some degree my personal uh, life and and, and visions and ambitions as well. And so that's really what drew me in. I've always been attracted to disruptive technologies, but I think Bitcoin has this potential to change the world um, and really revolutionize things in, I would argue, way bigger than the Internet did. Uh, so in 2012, I discovered Bitcoin. Everybody has their kind of own story of who told them the first time and what the price was at. Um, I couldn't really figure out the right way to get into Bitcoin. So I started a combination of trading on volatility. I wrote my own trading algorithm and was just trading against the run up in 2013. And I was also started publishing a variety of content, getting involved in the community. I was looking for areas to angel invest or perhaps start a new company. And I was fortunate enough to meet my co-founder, Mike Belshi, who's a 20-year technology veteran out of Google, Microsoft, and other companies, who had built some really incredible technology now known as Multisig, and he was the first one to bring this to market. And I saw the opportunity with Mike and with the board and the team we had started assembling to build a platform company and also build one of the first major trusted brands in the space uh, focused on security with also an initial go-to-market strategy around enterprise, which had been largely neglected to date, mainly because Bitcoin had only become mainstream to some degree in the press throughout 2013. Um, And so when Mt. Gox collapsed in early 2014, people were looking around and saying, hey, is Bitcoin dead? What do we do? How do we secure our Bitcoins? And luckily, we've been working on a platform for about a year and a half, and we're able to bring to market a product at the time we called BitGo Enterprise, which was a institutional-grade web wallet with multi-sig technology baked in so that large hedge funds, OTC trading desks, exchanges, miners and others could start to operate their finance teams in Bitcoin the way they did with traditional bank software, where you have spending limits and you have other types of corporate protections and treasury controls. And uh, as we progressed with the company, we ultimately launched um, access to our overall platform as an API uh and started to power some of the largest exchanges like Bitstamp and, and others uh and so so my evolution was um you know I fell in love with bitcoin but uh I really love operating companies and I wanted to get back in the saddle was lucky enough to meet Mike um through um an investor and then also we brought on Ben Davenport as our third co-founder so we have a great co-founding team we've raised as we said 14 million dollars we have a great board and an investor group and, and team based in Palo Alto, California
1: yeah i've uh, actually rubbed shoulders with Ben a little bit and other investments. And just last night I was talking with Michael Perklin at C four and he's been working on a lot of these crypto security standards and he said that, you know, Mike Belshi along with John B. over at Armory have contributed quite a lot to these crypto security standards. Do you think that's an important area for the industry to focus on and try to get security standards out for like best practices and things of that nature?
2: Absolutely. I think standards are critical. If you look at the history of other industries, um, in particular the internet, in 1993, 94, independent companies were trying to solve the problem of securing sockets and communication. And SSL was actually kind of a project inside Netscape, which then became a standard, which then got embraced by companies like VeriSign. And through those activities and through embracing a standard, we are able to see this growth in e-commerce and internet publishing. So today, everyone types in HTTPS on their internet browser. But that was actually the work of a bunch of proprietary companies trying to figure things out and then collaborating on a standard. And so I actually think in 2015, through work that we're doing and in collaboration with Michael at C4 and 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 with others like Armory and and, and others in the industry who have this domain expertise and years of experience, I think we'll see the emergence of standards. So standards like multisig, standards like HD wallets and other things that are really critical to both privacy and security Um, And helping entrepreneurs and businesses scale. I think for many years in the short life of Bitcoin, the first five years, everyone took kind of a DIY approach at building systems, security, scaling, whatnot. And that has led to a dramatic amount of loss and theft. And we're really at a point where we need to hit that inflection. We need to change that tune and see the industry embrace standards and say, you know what, I'm not going to go reinvent the wheel again and just kind of roll my own single key hot wallet. I'm going to use some of these best practices and those best practices will be codified into standards and those standards can be audited and insured against. And that's really what will move the industry forward and help it grow.
1: I interviewed Brian Donegan from the Isle of Man government. You know, they're pushing through legislation adding an amendment to a proceeds of crime act and the two main prongs of what he wants to get accomplished is one to protect customer funds and two to keep crime out. So when we're talking about like protecting customer funds and these standards, I mean, if you're an insurance company, how do you really assess the risk of whether these Bitcoins are going to get compromised or stolen or sent to the wrong key or or otherwise the company you're thinking of insuring is going to lose the customer funds? Because that's really like where the rubber meets the road. You kind of see the, these standards are just not even in place in the industry yet. We're working on trying to get them there, but once we get those standards in place, is that – what you kind of see happening, the insurance companies being able to come in, the large corporate adoption being able to come in, uh, and then Bitcoin really being able to, to deepen those network effects in terms of its nature as a protocol.
2: Mm. Yeah. I do think that the um, insurance for Bitcoin companies and, and the, the other activities around there will follow a similar pattern as previous industries, that first the insurance companies will take a conservative and hesitant approach towards something that's new because they don't get it. And then there will be one or two that or underwriters that will say, okay, let me back a particular horse. Let me get behind this company. So BitGo was fortunate enough to be one of, the, uh, one of the first companies to bring out custom Bitcoin theft insurance from a global A-rated insurer. And that has potentially be a watershed event where other insurance underwriters will get it and will say, okay, now we know that there is a standard that can be insured and we can calculate this risk. To date, really, the insurance around Bitcoin has just been basic crime policies. You know, will an employee on-site steal a private key out of cold storage? And there's so many problems with that. You're limiting the potential coverage to on-site theft by employee. You're limiting the implementation by the company to cold storage, which is then keeping those Bitcoins on ice instead of mobile and useful. And so I think what will happen is is the first major underwriters get behind this and others will follow suit. There'll be some proven models, there'll be a track record, and then the price will come down. If you look at past insurance innovations uh, like Y2K insurance or reputation insurance or DNO insurance or cyber insurance in the first part, all of these came out because somebody had the wherewithal and had the courage to say, I can calculate this. I can figure it out. Yeah, I don't have 30 years of actuarial data, but I can take a run at it because then maybe I can own the market. And so that's what's happening also, I think, in 2015 is that some of the larger institutions, whether it's the banks um, or it's the insurance underwriters or it's the auditors are saying, okay, Bitcoin is relevant enough that I should be answering questions: question, what is my Bitcoin strategy and how do I get into that business?
1: Yeah. And if you're the large corporate company to have a fiduciary duty, you're going to have to make sure that the keys can't be compromised or embezzled or otherwise lost insurance. Otherwise, you just don't really want to be playing around with it because you're literally playing with fire. You're holding the private keys to the money. You're taking that back from the bank. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very important area to be worried about.
2: Also, there's an education gap that um, I think people in those industries, the the insurance underwriters, see insuring Bitcoin like insuring a rare baseball card or a piece of art that if a private key is stolen, that's gone, or if it's destroyed, that's it, the Bitcoins are gone. And, and actually, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, there's been a number of innovations uh, and a number of companies embracing models like multi-sig. And then when you distribute multi-sig keys across multiple institutions in, say, of a two of three scenario, then you can even lose a key and it's not a problem. You can have a company hacked and attacked and it's not a problem that if you set up the right infrastructure, knowing that one leg of the stool may go out, then you can recover from that. And so I think we'll prove ourselves. I said track record before. I think we'll prove ourselves as an industry as we have more successes and fewer hacks due to companies like Mt. Gox that were never built to scale and never really built with these uh, concepts in mind.
1: One of the things that we found very difficult at Armory is just being able to find people who've got the technical aptitude, the raw aptitude, the mathematical background, coupled with the computer programming ability. To just justify us investing in training them and how to do Bitcoin programming, have you run into a similar type of problem over at Bitco, like with uh, acquiring the human capital necessary to do this type of work?
2: Well, actually, uh, hiring in Silicon Valley in general is very hard. The real estate market is through the roof, the cost of living significant. The larger companies are paying exorbitant salaries and paying to keep people. And so running a company, even as well capitalized as we are at our stage, is still a significant challenge. You couple that with Bitcoin being new, so you have kind of a selection bias. We really only hire people who are super passionate about Bitcoin and the opportunity Bitcoin has to change the world. If you don't have that spark, then you're not going to sustain the marathon that Bitcoin is going through. But from a technical talent basis, I think because we have incredible guys like Mike Belshi and Ben Davenport... That we found that technologists really want to learn and, and be mentored by them. And in terms of the, you know, the brains behind the crypto and the Bitcoin protocol, you don't need 10 people who know all of that. You know, you do need seasoned, uh, technology veterans who can drive the vision forward and really design the focus and, you know, code review and algorithm review and whatnot. But there's also a lot of work to be done, uh, in other important areas like user experience, making it really easy to use. You know, or how do you grow? Sometimes you grow through A B testing or, or other areas. So we're about 70% engineering on our staff. We're 13 people now and probably doubling over the next quarter. Um, so by mid year of 2015. And so, uh, you know, th- we're continuing to hire with a predominant focus towards engineering. But we also want a well-balanced team because we're building a platform company that has a service component, has training to our customers, uh, premium support, enterprise support for our customers, partnerships, and so forth. So we do bring in all walks of life, you know, not just the product and engineering focus.
1: Just kind of had the thought. We, uh, I'm sure we've got plenty of listeners that, you know, might be in college or in high school mm-hmm. or otherwise looking for a job. I know at Armory, we actually give them a very, very difficult set of math problems, and mm-hmm. then have them translate that into the appropriate uh, programming language. What type of process do you go through there at BitGo when you are hiring people? Like, what do what do these uh, people listen to the podcast and might think of coming to work for you? Like, what what do they need to kind of expect in order to make it in the door?
2: Well, we hire people at all various degrees of their career, from new college grads to very seasoned. Uh, experienced people and obviously align their work and their goals uh, with that experience. When we're looking at somebody, I mentioned a passion in Bitcoin as a key selection criteria, um, obviously relevance and functional skills. And then, you know, we definitely dig into cultural fit. That's really important for us. And I think when we're testing the skill set, it's really, is this somebody who can grow? Is this somebody who's shown independent aptitude? So, I love it, you know, Mike and Ben as hiring managers love it when they see somebody show up and they've got three different GitHub projects that are open source, Bitcoin things, just ideas they had. Doesn't matter if there were five checkouts or five million checkouts. It's just did somebody do something on their own time? Um, and actually demonstrate that they can build a project to completion, think outside the box. That's really what is great. Personally, my overall hiring approach is I call it intrinsic motivation, right? I want somebody who's there because they are super excited about what we're doing, what we can bring, but also they have this internal drive um, to do their own thing, and that aligns with our vision. Don't want to hire somebody who just wants to you know, build a career at our company or get comped by our company because – You know, it's the right place to be for the next few years. There's got to be something that they bring to the table that adds the fabric of our culture.
1: We can definitely testify to that. You know, we've created over 100 jobs between BitPay Armory and Kraken in this space. And one of our very best programmers, he's over there at BitPay, Manuel Arroz, he created proof of existence.com. Mm-hmm. You know, he he created all that all on his own. And that was one of the primary reasons we looked at him. I was actually going to hire him for a different stealth project, but then BitPay really wanted him. So we were like, okay, he can go over there. And he has just knocked it out of the park with stuff. So I think it's critical for people to understand, like, You can have this corpus of work that follows you around, and that becomes your resume. Absolutely. You know, you you don't necessarily need to send in a resume anymore. You just send in your GitHub profile, and it's like, hey, look, these are my commits, and the work speaks
2: for itself. There's really no excuse anymore, actually, um, to not do that. Uh, I know when I graduated from Harvard with computer science degree, I basically had my internships and my body of academic work and the projects I did there. But there wasn 't at that time the ability to just sign up for Amazon Web Services or build an app in the app store. You know the barrier to entry nowadays is like ninety nine dollars to do something, and so there's really no excuse anymore to and you have this open source community of people who might actually engage with your project uh, so at this point, I think it's incumbent for people to invest that way i'd say the same thing for business hires too I get asked so I went to you know got my MBA at MIT and I get asked a lot by visiting and my business school groups from. Variety of schools who have, you know, contacted me over time. What should I do if I want to get into venture capital? What should I do if I want to become an entrepreneur? What should I do? This, that, the other. And I would say, go do it. What are you waiting for? Don't go start a company and think you're going to build the next Uber. Just go call up the VC you respect the most and say, can I donate eight hours of each week to go do something for you for free for 10 weeks? You know, or go find an entrepreneur you respect and, um, you know, say, Hey, can I work for you on a project? You know, gratis and just learn from them and see if you like it and then if you do you're going to get a reference you're going to get some real world experience and go from there you're
1: going to meet some people you're going to like you're going to build something who knows what you build might actually start making revenue or start making money you might catch right. you might be the dog that caught the car I actually case.
2: funny stories. I actually did that um, for Jeremy Allaire when he was running Brightcove in the early days of Brightcove when I was at MIT I called him up and said I'm really interested in video and you know starting a business around video public Publishing maybe, but I want to learn more. Can I just, you know, bring a group of four students and work for you for free for ten weeks? And he said, sure. And I got to learn a lot from that experience. Now Jeremy and I are, uh, you know, friends and peers in the Bitcoin industry as, as, as CEOs of respective companies.
1: Yeah, and uh, for those that don't know, Jeremy O'Leary runs uh, CEO and founder of Circle, which I actually prefer. Circle, you know, buying my bitcoins—they've <laughs> been great. You mentioned this kind of marathon that Bitcoin's in, I think a lot of people, you know, they just track the price, they're very short term in their thinking. I've seen just lots of hot money come in and, you know, then the the tide kind of goes out, the price corrects, they just kind of melt away. We're left with a larger Bitcoin core in terms of people after each of these bubbles. But, you know, with trying to scale up Bitcoin, all this stuff, like what are you most pessimistic about in these cycles, just in Bitcoin in general? What kind of keeps you up at night?
2: Well, where I get discouraged is the the scammers and the lack of maturity of how people operate businesses. You know, some people still operate like this is the wild, wild west. And where I get encouraged is that I'm seeing the entrance of uh serial entrepreneurs, institutional venture capital, um, you know, major companies into adopting Bitcoin. So there's really this kind of fork in the road that we're at. And, um, unfortunately there's always going to be the, the low lives that do bad things uh, on the ecosystem. And that happens today all day long on, you know, on the internet or on Google ads or any other, you know, Facebook or any other major platform. But those problems are all reach scale. And Bitcoin is in this, um, you know, this dicey position where, uh, it would only take, you know, a rewording of the bit license or, or some other kind of regulation or some kind of you know, other action to really set us back another 6 to 12 to 18 months. So I'm I'm very optimistic and firmly believe that Bitcoin is here to stay. Bitcoin and blockchain is going to change the world. We'll become the backbone of our financial system globally over the next, say, 25 years and up. But I don't know what the next two, three, four, five years are going to bring about. And every time uh, there's a bad actor or a scam or a poorly run company or some kind of consumer impact or loss or theft or anything else, It just is discouraging because it's really just setting back innovation. It's it's us undoing ourselves as an industry rather than embracing. I think the same goes for over-competition, right? It's way too early. We're in the sandbox here. You know, it's way too early for us to be drawing lines and saying, we compete with you, you compete with us, this is bad, this is good. It's just too early. We need to kind of be building up the industry overall and defending the industry from the naysayers and the outside. So uh, I think those are really more of the dynamics that are uh that we need to get over, but I'm I'm optimistic that there will be perseverance. I think there's a lot of good people focused on doing good things. Um, and as we, as collectively, as we develop more useful purposes for Bitcoin, consumer, institutional, or just you know pipeline oriented and the back you know backbone oriented, then I think that traction, that growth in market cap will overcome these other hurdles that we're experiencing today.
1: So, you know, optimistic wise, I mean, did I hear you correctly? Like there's like a 0% chance of failure of Bitcoin, the protocol, like it will become the protocol for transferring value over the Internet or at least in your mind, it's going to be something huge. It's over that point of no return in terms of like probability of failure.
2: That's my current bias. Um, The logic behind that is twofold. One is that the blockchain has a barrier to entry that I don't think can be overcome, which is the distribution of mining power and the scale of the mining power. Now, the price dropping and miners washing out is testing that hypothesis. But if you really look at Bitcoin grew up when nobody was paying attention. So, you know, the large banks don't control Bitcoin. There's no government that controls Bitcoin. The security of the blockchain protocol is really based on this organic distribution growth. It's kind of, I call it an accident of history. It's one of these things that happened, and um, in the wake of the financial crisis, nobody really was going to believe that this digital currency could you know, could mean anything.
1: And the very people who should have understood it when it was released on the cypherpunk list right pretty much dismissed it. Exactly. I
2: mean it's really kind of crazy. So it kinda of stood those initial litmus tests and then still grew to scale. And and it has a scale now, although at three billion, you know, it's small, but it had a scale of fourteen billion that seemed like it was reaching escape velocity. I think what's then the next wave of that is the people and the institutional capital behind this, the, the folks that were really successful in the internet days and even before that, the previous cycles of technical innovation are now investing in Bitcoin as a major investment vertical. And the folks who are either straddling that fence or are new entrepreneurs, up and coming major entrepreneurs, in the next generation are focused on Bitcoin and a meaningful statistic, not 100% obviously, but a meaningful statistic. And I think that means that it has staying power. I look at, I mean, my company, we're a leader in Bitcoin security. It's fortunate enough to pull folks like the former CEO of VeriSign, who ran VeriSign for 14 years onto the board. Um, the former CTO Netscape is on my board. We've got the founding president of eBay as a investor, the founder of Yammer and executive PayPal as, as an investor and advisor. So we've got these folks that, see, Bitcoin is the second bite of the apple, and they really believe in it. And um, that much institutional weight behind this next wave of entrepreneurship between 2015 and 2020, I think, is going to push Bitcoin and blockchain. It's going to solve all the problems. We could identify problems in blockchain around, you know, number of transactions per second, block size, all these technical details. That's a computer science problem. We could identify problems around regulation and that's just a you know problem of managing through you know the jurisdictions that you live in. We could identify problems of adoption and you know, what will Visa do? That's a problem of just building a useful case and then partnering. So I feel like all those problems are gonna to come to fruition. And any kind of new technical innovation that's crypto related should really leverage Bitcoin as a universal money supply and blockchain as a universal ledger. So sidechains is a project I like much oh, more I than love much more than an altcoin. Um, but I do think there's going to be room for like crypto assets and crypto securities and, and others down the road as we get comfortable with Bitcoin as a starting point. But again, based on Bitcoin, maybe even Bitcoin as the money supply that is the price discovery engine for those assets.
1: Yeah, I mean I've kind of identified uh, seven main network effects that are all taking place at the same time. you got speculators, merchants, consumers – uh, mining or security developers financialization and then liquidity or world reserve currency or mm-hmm. type effect and like all seven of these are taking root at the same time And I mean we look at email. I think it's first implemented in what 1982 It's mm-hmm. a far inferior protocol right. compared to others that we have out there I mean even Bitmessage, which is just in beta I would say is better than email because one You're less likely to get spam due to the proof of work that's within it Two. Uh, There's no metadata. And three, it's private and encrypted by default. And four, you know that the message is only going to the intended recipient or from the uh, from the sender, unlike being able to spoof email. So it's a far superior protocol. And yet nobody's really going to move or switch over to it because of the network effects that email has. And yet Bitcoin's got network effects going across seven different areas all at the same time right. and then disrupting all types of industries all at the same time. I mean it's not just a minotaur in the sense that it's both a currency and a payment system and it's almost a phoenix in the sense that you know we had the inadvertent hard fork and we've had Mt. Gox and we've had Silk Road and all this stuff that's tried to kill it and it just rises from the ashes even stronger. But it's also a Hydra, you know, it's, it's not just a Trojan horse, it's a Hydra, like in all these different industries all at the same time. Because now that we have this blockchain technology, we have to go back in time and think, how would we have built everything differently if we had this technology then? And then that's what we're going to have to reconstitute or reconfigure. You know, it's very exciting because now we've got Bill Gates, for example, you know, December 2013, National TV says Bitcoin is a techno tour de force. A year later, Microsoft accepts Bitcoin for Xbox. Number two market cap company in the world. Like saying, you know, we're just dipping our toes in here, but we see lots of potential future applications with it, and we're going to start allocating resources here. So once those resources start getting allocated to Bitcoin, like what other protocol could possibly begin to challenge it? Exactly. Is there anything else, you know, <laughs> kind of got off on a tangent there, but I'm glad to find somebody who's also got kind of a similar viewpoint that, like, you know we've largely passed the point of no return. Like Bitcoin will be here in twenty, twenty five years, and it's going to be huge. It's just a matter of like finishing the marathon now.
2: yeah, and you know I just caveat that with um, people, you know the normal consumer won't be using the word Bitcoin in twenty five years, but Bitcoin and blockchain will be powering our global commerce and capital markets. Uh, and there will be a subset of transactions that maybe BTC or XBT or whatever acronym we come up with. Um, bits and whatnot. But uh, you know, I think generally people and companies both gravitate towards trusted brands, right? And in the payments ecosystem in the first world, that's your Visa, MasterCard, Amex, to some degree PayPal, right? And then in the third in the developing world it could be, you know, M Pesa, right? And and so forth. So uh there will still be needs by those large brands to determine are they going to cannibalize themselves for the next hundred years of growth, or are they going to wait and see if somebody can compete with them, and then try to consolidate uh, those companies that compete? So we're just seeing that dynamic play out right now. You know, uh, you got the payment processors are you know up and coming. You got remittance services up and coming, and, and the major f- institutions out there need to make that strategy call. Are they going to cannibalize their own business in the hopes of saving their own business? Uh, but in my opinion, genie's out of the bottle. There's no turning back on what this technology and what the, the network effects and the and the infrastructure behind the technology has already set in motion. We see the trajectory.
1: This is where it's going. You know, it's been an excellent interview. Thanks for taking the time. We've had Will O'Brien, CEO and founder at BitGo. Thanks for being with us. Thanks,
2: Trace. Good to be here.
0: Get a copy of the Free Bitcoin Guide at FreeBitcoinGuide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at Bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.